This is Small Changes, Stark Reality on jasoncharles.net. Welcome to another episode of Stark Reality. I'll try to get these things out in a more timely manner. You know how it is. Life. Anyways, uh, this time around we're interviewing my man, my mellow, DJ Clifton, a.k.a. Clifton James Weaver III, who is an L.A. staple. Been doing his thing for quite some time. Excellent, excellent DJ and also plays in uh, quite a few bands. So we talk about his background coming up especially some of the old-school L.A. mod scene, vintage clothes. He is one of the sharpest-dressed people in the biz, no doubt. And even get into talking about bad cop shows, racism, and our mutual friend Danny Holloway gets a shout. And I even learned something, like the original blues song that was the inspiration for the reggae classic No, No, No. Anyways, it's all here. The interview runs about 50 minutes plus 25-30 minute mix of him live at a club playing some uh, vintage selections. Oh, and by the way, in the background is uh, The Invaders from the Spacing Out record. Bermuda's Finest from 1970 or so. Anyways, Stark Reality, a podcast... That's not really that defined, though. We like, uh, you know, leftist politics and good music. So we'll leave it at that. Enjoy, enjoy, enjoy. So another installment of Stark Reality here with my man Clifton. And do you still go by Soft Touch or? Um, yeah, I, I, I still you know use uh, Soft Touch. Although me and I just go by DJ Clifton now. Um, I don't know. It's like you know, I went by you know DJ Soft Touch for so many years. It's kind of felt time for a change. Yeah, it's it's kind of funny. I mean, in the end, it's like, hey, you just you're a guy with a lot of really great records. That's the main point, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, yeah. That I mean, to me, that's always been the main thing. It's just um, playing great music. Um, you know, it's funny. I was reading an interview, and you were saying that you kind of got into DJing by happenstance because uh, you were in a band, and they the place wanted uh, just music, and you're like, okay, I'll just play records. Before is that basically it? Well, uh, well, what, what happens? Uh, I was in a band, and we had a residency uh, at this one spot, and. Um, the guy who's supposed to be the, the, the promoter slash DJ, um, 
he wouldn't always he, he wouldn't always DJ until he felt there was enough people. So a lot of times people would walk in and he would just have a whole side of a record playing, and they would walk in and look in the DJ booth and not see anyone, and just assume that nothing was going on and leave. Or sometimes he wouldn't have any music on, on at all. And people would walk in and assume that the bar was either closed or that there was that, that there wasn't an event for the night, so they would leave. And um, so after like two times of that, that after that happening twice, um, I just I, I just asked them like, "Hey, would you mind if I brought records?" Because I was thinking people need to see something happening in order for them to stay, and I wanted people to stay to see my band. So. Um, yeah, I just went to my dad's record collection, got, you know, a bunch of records and then, uh, went and, you know, bought some more of my own and, um, that's how I started. Yeah. And it's, you actually bring up a really, really good point with just throwing nights in general that sometimes that sort of beginning of the night when people are kind of deciding if they want to stay or go and how that can kind of steamroll into a bad night if people just decide to leave and then more people come see that there's still nothing going on. So it's kind of yeah, a down, it's like exactly. a downward spiral or if you can kind of catch people early on and then build a night, you can have a completely different night, you know? Yeah, exactly. It's like, it's like if I was getting like that first, like, you know, five to 10 people, you can convince that first five to 10 people to stay for at least like, you know, half an hour. Or so the next group of people that come in, they see people there then they're more likely to stay and feel comfortable staying there. And then, but yeah, if you if you don't if you don't catch you know if you don't kind of set the tone and set the vibe early on, yeah, it's, yeah, it's a it's a downward spiral. Yeah, and you've uh, and then it's as opposed to a downward spiral, you've been uh, DJing in uh, LA for quite some time now, all over the place, right? Yeah, um, Jeb, um, well, I've been DJing since about two thousand, and then uh, just DJing professionally since like two thousand eight. So, yeah, it's been almost 20, 20 years now. That's wild. And you still play in bands and stuff, right? Yeah, yeah I have a uh, currently my I have a project called the Mercury Wheel, where I, I play guitar and sing. And then occasionally I'll sit in. Uh, a good friend of mine has an amazing project. Her name's Amy Lay, and uh, occasionally I sit in on guitar with her project. And um, yeah, and I, I, I you know played with other you know. Um, musicians and singers around LA. Are you say you're kind of steered more towards DJing now? Is DJing almost like kind of been more your focus? Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, especially, you know, cause my first band broke up around 2006 and that's when I really started focusing on DJing. And that was just, uh, and originally it was, I was just focusing on DJing as a way to just stay involved in music and, you know, uh, you know, still be able to have a reason to go out and hear music and and be involved, and then it kind of like you know actually, you know, just kind of grew into like a you know kind of a, a I guess a career. And um, so yeah, definitely, I would say like you know, DJing is my focus. Although you know, playing music live has always been like my first love, and you know, something I I, I always try to stay involved in as well. Yeah, I mean, the nice thing about DJing and someone that has eclectic tastes like you is you can throw different kinds of nights. I mean, I know, obviously, you've done tons of, like, uh, funk, 45, soul, etc., but you also do, like, almost Britpop-type nights, and, I mean... Yeah. 
Yeah, it kind of feels almost like, um, well, I mean, definitely, um, you know, kind of coming out with the whole, like, 60s mod scene in LA and, like, the pop indie scene that kind of, like, they were, you know, at the time I was involved, they were, like, kind of hand in hand. And, you know, in a way, those are kind of, like, almost like my roots because I remember just going to, like, a lot of Northern Soul nights and that was, you know, really kind of, like, that was, for me, that was, like, my first exposure to, like, any kind of club night built around, like, you know, older black American music was going to Northern soul nights. And that kind of turned more into like this 60 soul. So it went from just strictly Northern soul to like, you know, nights and incorporated kind of like more stacks. And, um, you know, other like sounds besides just strictly like four on the floor Northern. Right. More kind of like Southern yeah. R&B soul, which I, I, to me, I kind of lean yeah. a little bit more towards in my personal taste, you know? Yeah, yeah, and, and and then, you know, just and then just from seeking out more and more of those sounds, you know, I started going to you know nights that were definitely more funk based. You know, because I, I, at one point there was like you know kind of a problem with like um like skinheads in, in, in the in the LA mod scene that were fighting. You know, you know not, not not racist skinheads, but at the same time the skinheads didn't like mods and. Yeah, like I mean, pop and the kids, and so a lot, a lot of the knights stopped playing soul records to kind of discourage skinheads from showing up. So then I started going to like you know nights like Root Down and other nights like that because you could still hear like you know old Black American music at those nights. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, maybe we should talk a little bit about like the old school LA mod scene that uh, I assume is still going on. But I, when I was growing up, it was it was pretty big. It was huge. Yeah, um, I feel like it, it, it's it's there, there's something of it that's still alive. It's not quite as um to me, it doesn't seem as formally mod as it as it was. Maybe well, I, I, think... I got kind of involved like mid '90s, and you know everything was very explicitly mod did, and everyone was trying to wear suits. And, and there's definitely like there's definitely a very strong '60s scene in LA. Um, I, I don't know if if, if they consider themselves necessarily mod or not, I, I mean, it's definitely. Well, I guess I guess things. Outgrowth of that. Yeah, things evolve. You know, it's almost. You know, I think sometimes in the '80s, you know, and you're talking about like skinheads, almost like you said, even like sharp skinheads, or there was just violent factions in that scene. Yeah. Back in the day, I mean, I saw more violence then than I've really seen in any scene that I've really rolled in. You know, which is funny to think that was a kid yeah. when that was happening, but yeah, it's. But it was, you know, you had bands like Fishbone and obviously like the Untouchables and mm -hmm. I don't know. It was just uh, huge scooter rallies. It was really like a pretty big scene back in the day. Yeah. And because I, I, I remember like there being, you know, things that were explicitly mod nights that would, you know, they'd say hey, so like massive venues. Um, but, you know, at the same time nowadays, you know, one, I don't see a whole lot of people wearing, you know, that are super dressed up like in suits per se. Everything's very, yeah, most I guess, of the looks I see now are kind of like mid to late 60s, psychedelic. Um, I don't see a lot of people wearing, you know, not, hardly anyone drives scooters. I don't see scooters ever anymore. Well, sometimes I feel like there's an aesthetic because then you had like a series like Mad Men, that especially in the first couple of seasons, really, because it was, I guess, what, early 60s, really kind of captured that mod aesthetic. But it's almost like, Sometimes I feel like you have people that kind of get into it a little more style-wise, but don't kind of understand 
maybe some of the culture musically yeah. or whatever or history that's coming up. They're just like, oh, that looks really cool, you know. But again, I'm not trying to be some grumpy yeah. man either. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm hardly a no, purist no, 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 mod no, either. No, I, I totally it's just it. it's just kind of understanding the culture behind it, I guess. You know. Yeah, I, I think. Um, well, I, I think kind of part of that too is like the, the internet has made it so that things are so accessible so quickly. You don't actually really have you don't you don't get exposed to a whole lot of the culture because I remember like when I first got into it, you know, there wasn't really like an internet. You can go on a website and just look up looks and then order. You couldn't it even get half the stuff. Website, you had to shop order online. Yeah, you had to order things from like a uh, catalog, you know. Catalog. Like Ben Sherman. Yeah, I remember or... there, there, there was a shop because like there's nowhere to get Fred Perry's. There's nowhere really to get LA. Fred Perry's. There's there was... nowhere, nowhere to get Doc Martens. You had to drive to like, I had to drive to like Huntington Beach to some punk rock shop to buy Docs. Yeah. 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 Before, I mean, I remember there used to be a shop out here in Uptown Whittier called Monkeys to Go that would have occasionally have a small selection. And there was a shop out on Melrose called Camden Lock and another one called Posers. Posers. Yeah. Oh my God. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Posers. Exactly. Wow. I just had a crazy flashback. Posers. Wow. Yeah. They didn't have like massive selections. Right. You know, then there's like a lot of vintage shops like in Long Beach on 4th. Well, yeah. yeah I have now. to give a shout out to Meow. Meow started that whole thing. Yeah. Meow. I'm spacing yeah, yeah, on her name, but she there. is. She, there's, there's books about her. She's like the queen of vintage. She is. She. Wow. I didn't know that. I just know Meow's been there forever. And that. Meow started that whole block. That was kind of. You know, I've yeah. been shopping yeah, there. There's for... another shop that was close to me out called Mad Rags. Right. I think I got one of like my first mod suits at. But, yeah. I mean, but just then, just like, you know, just going to buy one suit, you know, you go there and then like the people are like, oh, okay, you're into this. You should check out this shop and they give you flyers for different nights you should check out. And, you know, I just remember wearing like the same two or three suits for like months because but still going to like different nights to find out about other stuff. But, but by going to those nights, you meet people, you get exposed to the music, you get exposed to the culture. Now it's like you go online and you can stumble across a website. You can have, you know, you can find a couple hundred complete looks online. And then, you know, depending on how much money you have, you can order it all off a website without ever having to meet anyone, hear any music or even get any kind of real understanding what the whole kind of like subculture is about. Yeah. And again, it's, it's not even trying to, for me personally, it's not about being on some grumpy old man perspective. It's just about, no, 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 you know, people kind of treating, you know, at least something that I spent a bunch of years being heavily into and still style wise into. And it's like, I don't know. I think sometimes it just gets dismissed. Like, okay, this is the latest trend. It just cheapens it in my opinion a little bit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm definitely not trying to be a grumpy old man about it because I mean, at least for me, you know, I love the convenience now of, oh, you know, if I, if I really, really want something, I know I can find it. Yeah, that's something that's also, it, I think, it. can't be understated enough for people who are digging back in the day. Just being able to see things and just being able to get it, like at least getting the file, hopefully an okay file of it if you need it. But just because yeah. I, mean, I think for a lot of those rare records sometimes you just hear about records you know so you kind yeah. of would like you'd hear about it and you'd finally see it yeah. at like a record fair and it'd be like insanely overpriced on the wall and it's like oh that freaking record damn <laughs> you know yeah and now you yeah. can just i mean I, I remember that like a lot of things just like, like records clothes books just like hearing about it and reading you know reading a description of a record or reading a description of a book and just never coming across it like out in the wild. And then like, yeah, when you do see it, it's like, well, it's so, 
expensive, I'm not ever going to own that. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, that's that's a good convenience. And, I mean, that's probably a good segue to talk because you also do, like, private events, too. And you DJ on Serato as well sometimes, as well as vinyl. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'll use Serato. Yeah. I mean, you know, with, with private events and with weddings, especially, like, you know, more with weddings because, because you know, I mean, when I do I, do I, weddings, I'm, I'm very concerned with making sure the music is what the couple wants to hear, what their family wants to hear. And, yeah, it's just easy to have a, a, a wider selection of music on hand. I mean, I have Cardi B yeah, on vinyl. Yeah, the, I don't know about you. I'm kidding. <laughs> My friend does that, uh, which yeah, is kind of hilarious. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Really on vinyl? I mean, but I mean, that's the thing. It's I, like you know, in terms of newer pop music, if you're like keeping up on all this stuff to just again either play an event or entertain people, because you know, especially depending on the event, well, yeah, I mean, you have I mean, to meet people some sometimes really more like. than halfway. You know. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. I mean, I know, like, um. I can't remember. Somebody explained to me though once that like you know it's kind of almost owning like the newer pop stuff on vinyl. It's almost kind of pointless just because that was stuff was all recorded digitally, is recorded, mixed, and mastered digitally. So when you actually transfer into vinyl, it'll actually expose like kind of like the the digital inaccuracies, like the gaps. Right. Yeah. So it's almost like you, it's, you know, I'd rather buy that digitally than than spend the money to buy it on vinyl because. Well, also, just in terms of space... It's not doing anything sonically. I mean, how much, you know, it's just the the amount of records in terms of... Because that's the thing that gets crazy. I don't know. I've kind of scaled back a little bit just, like, in terms of buying just mostly 45s and stuff I want to play out because, you know, it just... It does get kind of insane if you want to collect all the things you like. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Like, in terms of... Yeah, yeah. In terms of, like, you're buying records, what, what is the general things you're kind of looking to buy on vinyl these days? I mean, yeah, like you said, man, I look, I look for like funk and soul stuff that I can play out. Um, you know, and like, I, I still buy like a lot of, you know, like kind of like the newer uh, psych stuff that uh, those, those groups that have been influenced by the 60s. Um, you know, some of like the stuff that's like on Wick Records, that Daptone subsidiary I bought on vinyl. Um, I mean, because there's a lot of stuff that I like to listen to. Right. That at some point I can see myself maybe playing out somewhere. Because um, sometimes I get asked to DJ shows for bands, so in that case, a lot of stuff that I would listen to, like a lot of '60s stuff and a lot of like, the newer psych groups. Um, yeah, you know, I've done, I get I've asked done to a that few stuff out, and it's actually convenient to have that on vinyl. Yeah, I've done a few gigs like that, and it's actually kind of fun, like almost opening up for a rock show, because it really does give you a lot of leeway in terms of uh, what to play. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Because like, if, if I'm playing like a rock show, I can like you know. You know, get into like some '60s garage rock, psych, but still play like a lot, a lot of funk and soul, and you know, maybe even kind of like some kind of '60s pop stuff that wouldn't work like on a dance floor. Right. But for people just waiting around to hear another band play, it's perfect. Yeah, you can kind of get into those sort of like '60s pop sides, like I don't know, you know, the Turtles or the Trog stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, like yeah, '60s Nirvana stuff or like um like other soundtrack kind of sound things. Nice. And, uh, you know, just in terms of uh, the focus of this podcast, actually one of the reasons I also really wanted to have you on, besides, you know, being one of the sharpest dressed cats, come on, Clifton. Oh, thanks. Um, is to talk about <laughs> politics and the wonderful world we are living in. And I know that you post quite a bit of stuff on social media. Um, yeah. 
maybe if you want to talk about either the kind of stuff you post about or what inspired you to uh, post on, you know, about this stuff in general. Um, well, I, I mean, I mean, part of what just inspired me to start posting was just the fact that, you know, you know, being on Facebook and, you know, starting to ha- you know, when I started to have like kind of like a, a sizable number of people that followed me and would comment on posts, I would start thinking, well, you know, whenever I would come across an article or something that I found interesting, I just thought, well, this is a good opportunity maybe to expose some people who might not have read anything or might not think about things a certain way. Here's a, here's a chance to expose them to information or some facts that might open their mind or broaden their perspectives. And that's just how it really started. And then, um, I don't know. I just feel like as time has gone on, you know, yeah, I got exposed to more things. You know, honestly, I felt like I've been pulled further and further left. Just, um, yeah, I feel the same way. It's like almost like, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I don't want to say pulled because it makes it sound like it's involuntary, but just like what, what, what I've been exposed to is open my mind, my eyes up to, you know, in so many ways to like, you know, what's really going on in the world. And I, and I just kind of hope I can do that for somebody else. And especially in terms of like things like uh, police brutality and like the more s- systemic issues where because they're systemic and have been so deeply ingrained in our ways of, in our way of life, we don't always see it. We're not always aware of it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think that, you know, even saying pulled, but you know, and as you said, it's not involuntary, except maybe the concept is, hey, you care about other human beings. So maybe that's the involuntary exactly. part when you start to realize about, about how all these people are being oppressed. And then it's like, yeah, it's for me, it's hard to, to not say something about all that yeah. stuff. And yeah, police brutality is, you know, it is something that's so ingrained and, and you kind of see it even also with the media and the politicians that they're obviously on you know, that side as well. So you yeah. kind of like, even I mean, as things, even our entertainment. Yeah. So even as you see it unfold, you know, the story is, are, is being warped from the start, you know? And, yeah, and you kind exactly. of see that with how headlines are being treated and even the, the type of photo that they use. And, you know, mm-hmm. so, I mean, that's the thing yeah. that I think, and, um... well, anyways, go on. Sorry. Oh, no, 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 no go ahead. Yeah, yeah I, was, I, I was gonna think. Yeah, there's exactly like head, the headlines, the photos, and um, something I'm more and more aware of these days is just in terms of like entertainment and how and how you know our TV shows kind of condition us a certain way. TV shows and movies, like you know, you know, even going back to the '70s with Clint Eastwood as Dirty Harry, you know, the cop that doesn't necessarily follow the rules, but that's why he's really the hero. And if there weren't so many rules getting in his way, he'd be able to really go out there and get the bad guys. And that's just, you know, conditioning us to to think that the cops are always right. Yeah, well, Clint Eastwood. You know, and then the TV shows like Law and Order. And then look at Clint, you know, Clint Eastwood. The TV shows like Law and Order. Right. Right. No, I actually talk about this a lot. But yeah, and again, look at Clint Eastwood's politics. So enough said. But, you yeah, know, exactly. beyond all that. Yeah, I think like there's just so many kind of like cop shows, you know, even shows like Homeland that are arguably, you know, probably hella racist. And it's like, you know, it's just yeah. it's almost like, well, that's just that's an entertainment option, you know, but it's like I don't think like if you had the kind of depiction of, say, Jews or maybe even other ethnic groups, the way that they depict Muslims, 
it wouldn't necessarily be on the air, you know? Yeah. Oh, no, that would never fly. And, uh, you know, we, you know, we kind of decided like that that's going to be the group that we're going to hate for this century or whatever. Like, yeah. And then even with cop yeah. shows, it's like, I mean, I make this joke all the time, but it's sort of like the, the summary of every cop show, which is it's not easy being a cop. <laughs> you know, it's just like, yeah, it's yeah, just it, like it's yeah, always this kind of like to always. It's like, yeah, tough life, sympathetic, you know, they're a flawed character, but they're still the hero. And it's like, yeah, maybe it's a little bit more like Bad Lieutenant, you know? It's like, you don't really see too many cop shows where the whole precinct is racist, <laughs> you know? Like, where yeah. that might actually echo something happening in real life, you know? You don't really see that. Yeah, exactly. You know? Exactly. It's always, it's always very sympathetic towards the cops. And even if there is an episode about a bad cop, it shows all the good cops you know, really struggling and working to figure out how to get the bad cop. AKA like, fiction. That's not what really happened. <laughs> it's like there's a bad cop and then like everybody else is struggling and figuring out how do we protect the bad cop or like they're making excuses for the bad cop. Right. You never see a, a you never see a cop show where like a police union comes in and shuts down any kind of dissent or I mean police unions are kind of the worst at some of the, you know I, I you know, some well, of the absolutely. worst characters are police union you know, presence. It's uh yeah, it's it's yeah. it's crazy. It is crazy. And 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 I, I just think about that because I think I mean I remember I remember being a little kid and there's and from the time I was a little kid to now to been nothing but cop shows on T V. Going back to the seventies with like that, that Michael Douglas show, Streets of San Francisco, Hill Street Blues. Yeah, Hill Street Blues, Hill Street exactly. Blues was, was over, you had NYPD Blue, you had a commish. You have like 13,000 episodes of Law & Order. It's really absolutely ludicrous <laughs> how yeah. many episodes of yeah. Law & Order there are. It's crazy. And that, and that guy, Dick Wolf, who does Law & Order, he does nothing but cop shows because now he's got FBI on CBS and... And you got like SWAT. And, I mean, even and if you have some of the all, the, the, the... all the military shows. Yes, all the military shows, exactly. It's okay, great. I mean, you we've, have we've just this... Been, as a society, we've been just so conditioned to look at these people as being blameless and faultless and like... And, and even and even the good guys, you know? And then that's when... You yeah. Know, when you see like sort of foreign policy things come around, like us trying to invade Venezuela, and it's like, you know, who do you think is trying to do all that stuff? The quote-unquote good guys, the CIA. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's like, yeah, exactly. who do you think is doing all this terrible stuff? They're not good, you know. I, I just that's the thing that's a little yeah. bit twisted that I kind of feel like is missing with you know people that aren't quite going, you know, as quite as far left as I I want to see. Just in terms of human rights, it's because they just you know they write off some of this stuff. They write off the foreign policy like it's just not a big deal, you know. Everything is so yeah. bad right yeah, now. I mean, we just got to concentrate on making sure things are okay here. And who cares if, you know, it's just, it's, it's sort of an afterthought. And it's like, it's probably not an afterthought yeah. to the countries that we invade, you know? No, absolutely not. I know there, there was a really great, um, I hate to call it a meme because it's actually like a full on quote, but it's from somebody. Um, I think somebody had posed a question at, you know, it was around the, uh, sometime last month around, which was like the 15th, 16th anniversary of the invasion of Iraq, Iraq. And um, somebody posed a question, oh, do you remember where you were when you heard that the U.S. was going to invade Iraq? And an actual Iraqi answered and said, I was in Baghdad with my parents. We were, the city was dead silent. And then went to describe, you know, what that was like leading up to the moment of the first bombs dropping. And um, 
obviously the person that posed the question was posing it for people here in the U.S. And this person, I guess, lives in the U.S. now, but it was like, it, it was it was like a thing that was really, I, I thought it was a great way to kind of make people see it from the other side. I mean, I think you know? that that's one of the real main problems in the world is, I think, perspective, you know, is that because you yeah. have this sort of false perspective that's sort of sold, you know, trying to be, you know, selling it to us through media and through even our leaders that are complicit with a lot of this stuff, then you you see this kind of false reality, you know, Maduro is corrupt, we got to save it. But then when you look at the reality of it, you look at things like Libya and all these different countries we've destroyed, you know, I just, yeah, I think like anyone. if you just we, kind we of just, just don't take countries. Yeah. I mean, it's just like, but I think there's still that element where people still take things at face value. Okay. It's in a, it's in a quote unquote respected media outlet. It must be true. And, uh, that, yeah. that is a really good, and also we, you know? Yeah. I mean, and, and, and I, I think part of it too, is just kind of like, it's like a basic human psychology thing. And I think it's like a basic thing in human psychology where you always want to view yourself as being the good guy. Yeah. You're, you're the good one. You, you, you know, we want to view ourselves as being the heroes of the story at all costs. You know, no one wants to view themselves as being the villain. Yeah. Well, the, the classic thing is something like star Wars where we probably, you know, obviously we're like, yeah, go Luke Skywalker. But you know, I forget. I remember reading well, an interview with someone else, but it's like they—they're like, "Yeah, you guys are the empire. <laughs> We're the rebels," which is yeah. true. Think about it. You know? yeah. And, yeah. Exactly. I mean, and, yeah, and, and it's always uh, amazing to me that, like, you know, that so many people, especially so many people, you know, who are you know far far right. We'll, we'll watch a movie like Star Wars and relate to, you know, the rebellion and not realize that, like, you know, you know when George Lucas wrote and, and filmed Star Wars, he was, you know, the rebellion was supposed to be, you know, the, 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 the Viet Cong that were fighting the U.S. The U.S. was the empire in his mind. Oh, wow. I didn't and, know that. You know, so, yeah, it, it was an anti, it was, a, it was pretty much an anti-Vietnam, an anti-Vietnam war. Wow. Clifton, uh, you know, you're 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 full of like all kinds of uh, knowledge. <laughs> no, it's because I was flipping through the <laughs> Clifton's corner and I didn't realize uh, "No, No, No" was uh, versed off of a Willie Bobo song, which is, I guess, versed off of a Bo oh, Diddley uh, song. Willie 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 Mayburn. Uh, oh God, I'm blanking on his name. I have like a later 45 of it, but uh, yeah, it's called "You Don't Love Me." Right. It's a, it's a blues song. Yeah, it's an old blues song, and. um yeah, because there's obviously like you know in the early uh, well, and he stole it from Bo Diddley, I think. Right, that's what you. I think that's what you mentioned in the column. Yeah, yeah, because like Bo, there's a, there's a Bo Diddley song where it's just one line, and Bo Diddley says, "No, no, no, you don't love me." This I know, and then that guy did a cover of it. Willie Cobb, that's who it is. Okay, Willie Cobb, yeah, based his whole song off that one line of the Bo Diddley song, and then. Yeah, then, and then that was probably around that time when there was a lot of exchange with like R and B and stuff with Jamaica, which is sort of yeah, like the beginning of ska. If you look at those early ska records, they're almost like R and B records. Yeah. Anyways, we're just jumping around here, people. <laughs> <laughs> we should talk a little bit about style before we bounce out of here because uh, you uh, really have some crazy clothes. Do you have like? sort of uh, any kind of favorite vintage brands or what do you kind of look for when you're looking for, you know, putting together those crazy um, outfits? 
Well, uh, I mean, you know, it's it's always kind of changing. Um, you know, I, I think like you know when I like when I first got into dressing, you know, it's part of the whole '60s mod scene. Um, you know, I, I didn't really know a whole lot. I just knew enough to like, oh, I want to look like Steve Marriott, or I want to look like you know Paul Weller, or whatever. And then, um, and then, uh, you know, but uh, you know, as, as I've gone on, you know, I, I kind of like you know always look at like. Uh, you know, a lot of my inspiration comes from like watching old movies and stuff. Uh, these days, I'm very much influenced kind of by like you know some cl- classic Ivy League looks, as well as um, you know mid '60s to early '70s European styles as well. So I kind of go back and forth between those, and um, you know, and, and nowadays it's not always just vintage that I wear, but it's kind of anything that has kind of like the right look to it. Um, in terms of like favorite things that I own. Um, there was a brand, a French brand called J. Keege, which uh, had like the, that they made these things called slack jackets, which were kind of like very kind of like unconstructed, deconstructed kind of jackets where they didn't have any lining, no shoulder pads, nothing like that. Just kind of like the material, uh, kind of like this kind of cotton material. And I have like a a, a sport coat from one of them, and. Uh, which I, you know, it was, it's newer, but uh, you know, I found it online, eBay. You got a great <laughs> deal on it, and uh, it, I, I just really like it because it's like a nice kind of fusing between like kind of classic Ivy League look, but also has like some European style details. So it's like three button natural shoulders, which is very Ivy League, um, center vent, but then it has like uh, darts, which are kind of European, just so that the body has a little more shape to it. Little, uh, little more fitted through the body. Uh, so that, that's something I really like. Do you and, ever think uh, about designing clothes, or is that a little crazy? Oh yeah, I, I thought about it a, a lot, and a, a couple times I've talked to people about possibly starting, um, you know, some, you know, clothing line. Just never, just never actually kind of like nothing ever really materialized out of it. Even for a little, for a few years, uh, from 2005 to 2008. I worked for a clothing label. It was a women's clothing line, but you know, worked for a clothing label out in downtown. So I got to see like the whole process, you know, from you know designing, making patterns, and you know having then having like the actual production run cut and the whole the whole process from yeah making getting to, like, the samples the cut all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, to, to like you know to see the stuff out in the store. So yeah, I mean, and yeah, it's something that's always fat, that I would always love to you know try my hand at. Um, yeah, it just hasn't hasn't happened yet. Yeah, I mean, there's there's only so many things to do in this world. And besides, you know, we got to hear more of your records anyway. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, there's, yeah, there's only time for so much in in this world. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit uh, about uh, some of the tracks? I guess it's, this is cut out of a mix from a a night you guys were doing. Yeah, um, yeah, uh, about a year ago, uh, it was myself, uh, two other great DJs and collectors, Danny Holloway. Yo, fuck He's that like guy! Absolute legend. I'm you know? kidding. I'm kidding. Huh? <laughs> Danny, Danny is my Long Beach brother. Examino Records. Yeah. Represent Long Beach. Yeah. It's a, yeah. Yeah. All three of us. I'm old, old school Long Beach. Exactly. Yeah, I, mean, I, I never knew his mom was the one that started Zed, Zed Records. So he started posting on online. I was like, wow, I used to go to Zed. I do. I went to Zed's um, too when I was a kid. I know. Like Danny's family is like Long Beach royalty. Come on. Of course. Yeah. Yeah, and then of course Danny, you know, he, I guess you know he's been in bands. That, you know, I think was it Ugly Things or Shindig or something. Wrote about one of his bands that he was in in the '60s, and then you know, 
God, he he wrote for Enemy and all that. Yeah, no, Danny. Well, I did records. Yeah, I did a whole. I did an article about Danny Minute years ago, but uh, yeah, he wrote for. Yeah, but. He wrote for NME uh, in the seventies. Interviewed Stevie Wonder and David Bowie around that time, and then yeah, he worked T-Rex for then he worked for and... Island Records and was in Jamaica in the mid seventies. Yeah. I think he produced a Heptones record. He went to the Black Ark, you know, before it burned down. I mean, he really has crazy yeah. stories, Danny. He's been around for a long time. Yeah, then also the the Plimsolls, which is like a group I was into as well. Like, and I was looking at. He told me about that. He's like, yeah, I used to manage at Plimsolls, and like, so I get home and I look at my Plimsolls record. And then sure enough, is managed and produced by Danny Holloway. I know. I have a funny Danny Holloway like record credit thing. When I first was uh, getting into college radio, uh, KUCI. So there it is behind the orange curtain. And uh, wow, I, I went to UCI. Yeah. Did you did you DJ on there too? Um. Well, it was like it was a long time after I graduated that I DJed there. Um. I DJed on K. I guess DJ uh, a friend of mine had a show on KUCI around. 2012, 2012, and uh, I guess DJed on her show. That's my first time DJing on KUCI, but I went to UCI from 93 to 97. Yeah, wild. Wow, we almost just missed each other. I think I left around in the 92, 93. Damn. Wow. That's crazy. Anyways, like, uh, yeah, um, shouts to KUCI, no doubt. But I remember, like, just going through their library, listening to stuff. Unfortunately, the last few times I went there, I think it kind of got ransacked by people, and you know how that goes. But, uh, yeah, you got to keep some security going on with that stuff. But basically, um, one of they had like some 70s meters sort of best of, I think Island Records put it out. So they compiled some of the Josie sides and they put it out as kind of like a more well-distributed release, probably from their original releases. And it came out like, I don't know, mid-70s. And it was like a cartoon cover, you know? And that was actually Mm -hmm. how I got into the meters. That was the record I discovered and just, you know, a bunch of other stuff in that library over the years. And it's like... It's funny. I bumped into Danny later, and he's like, "Yeah, you know me on the there. They the artist drew me in the corner. So if you look on the cover of that Meters record in Island wow. Records, there's a, there's Danny is there like in a Where's Waldo thing, kind of in the corner, but it's definitely him. It's kind of hilarious. Wow. <laughs> so yeah, Danny Holloway. Such on a 70s. small world. <laughs> I know it's crazy, but, but yeah, yeah, you yeah. guys were playing together, and then who else? Uh, another LA DJ. Yeah, right? and also Mona Lisa. Mona Lisa, Mo- right. Mona Lisa Murray from uh yeah from Motown on Mondays. Yeah, well, I know she awesome. has like you know long history. It was like, yeah, she's another one with like you know deep roots and long history in the LA music scene. And so yeah, we had a night together called Skin Tight, the three of us. And uh, that night, DJ Scratch was our um, was our guest DJ. But yeah, it was like May eighteenth from last year. And uh, so yeah, that 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 mix is kind of like cut. It's like uh, my set that night. I think was like uh, about an hour. And yeah, that's a you know good twenty five minutes cut out of that hour. Nice, yeah, and uh, obviously, yeah, and, uh, uh, yeah it's kind of like the sound I've been really into lately, which is kind of like more international, very percussion heavy. Yeah, I think African I th- and Latin sound. Yeah, I think even when you're, you know, digging through kind of these vintage genres, you do kind of get even within yourself your own kind of like, hey, this is a sound I'm kind of discovered or looking for more now, and I, yeah, to me, yeah, those. Kind yeah, of heavy yeah. trop those heavy tropical records always work. I always want more of them. <laughs> always. Yeah, sure. so do I. That, that that that's so what I'm into. That, you know, for I think like the last three or four years, just like that heavy tropical kind of sound. 
And um, but at the same time, I feel like, you know, because I listen to so so many different types of things, you know, my tastes are always changing right. and evolving. You know, it's like right. I never like it never it never becomes a thing where I hate what I listened to before. But it's just I just kind of get focused in on one thing, and um, you know, sometimes it's like you know, because before I, I really started getting into the heavy tropical thing, I was like really getting into like you know blues and early art, you know, like uh, early R and B, early soul. Yeah, I think kind of like that rock and R and B sound. Yeah, I think on one of those Clifton Corner uh, columns, you you were talking about some like uh, Little Milton records, or you were talking about yeah. a few different blues records. And yeah, I mean, I think that kind of like raw '60s blues sound, '50s blues. I mean, obviously, again, it's just pure raw music, you know. Yeah, yeah. I think I think at the end of the day, I mean, at least for me, because. Um, I just remember growing up during the time, I think I grew up during that time when like, just as MTV was really taking over everything and just as record labels were beginning to consolidate, but at the same time, you could still hear, you know, new, there's still enough things out there that sounded different that for me, when, when I'm listening to music now, I'm always looking for something that's definitely like, you know, raw or sounding, which to me, for for, for whatever reason, to me, it always translates as being like you know more honest, yeah, and less um, less uh, less polished, less corporate, less yeah. Because you know, I mean, and and I know it's probably like a personal bias, but whenever I hear anything that's like super polished, I just automatically assume that like okay, it's like a team of songwriters and producers, and right, you know, no one has any real stakes in this, and like they're going for this sound because they probably did a focus group and they figured out yeah, this is the sound exactly. and they think this is the sound well, that everyone wants to hear it. right now. So they're just going to, so they're just going to give them a product, you know? And, um, yeah, I, like years ago, cause one of my first jobs out of college was working at a book on the Hill. And the subtitle of it was how the music business became the music industry. And it kind of details the process of how, you know, I think it starts like in the forties, and basically everyone that was putting out records were people that loved music. You know, the people that were involved in the business side were actual former musicians who didn't make it as musicians, so they took jobs on the business side, but their time as musicians gave them an insight into which musicians would be good to hire and work with and which ones wouldn't. And that's the way it went all the way up through the sixties and all of a sudden you had like this big explosion with like the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and then all of a sudden records are selling in numbers they'd never sold before. And then now you have people who are just business majors who have no interest in music or no real love for music. It's just like a widget that they have to sell. And now they're getting involved in the music business because there's lots of money to be made. And then, and I, uh, you know, reading that book is always kind of, uh, I mean, that book, reading that book really kind of affected the way I view you know, corporate big label music now. And yeah, yeah. I, I feel like it's not made by people who have any real passion for it. It's just well, as you said, product it's, to be sold. I think sometimes that focus group approach, where it's like, okay, this is the in sound. How do we calculate a hit around this sound? It's not around someone just making an original record that happens to catch on. And that, to me, is yeah, a little more of an honest way of going about it. I mean, yeah with people that are obviously some crack studio people, you can recreate stuff, but it's not quite the same feel. Definitely not the same intent, you know? Yeah, exactly. I, and, and to me also, it just seems like, in, like for the last 
God, close to 20 years now, I feel like everything sounds the same. Like something happened. Like, well, I mean, I, I, it's not just something happened. You know, those years when you had like the boy bands and all the teen, teen groups that came out like in the uh, late 90s. Right. In, in, in that time, you know, so many record labels all, all, all got consolidated and like the smaller ones folded. And then like on the radio station side, you got like massive corporate conglomerates like Clear Channel that took over everything. And so now it's like rather than the people having any kind of say in what in what music they like and what what you know breaks and what what records get broken or whatever, it's all coming from the top down now. So there's you know, I think it sounds the same now. Yeah, I mean, and I understand, like, I think, you know, again, touching on sort of a general human concept, like, hey, we're the good guys. Another general human con concept is, hey, people tend to like, you know, they want to respond to things that they know, you know, it's it's kind of like yeah. a comfort zone. And maybe if you're just a little bit apprehensive about dancing or vibing, it's like, oh, they're playing something I know. It's kind of like, you know, you went to McDonald's again. Oh, or yeah, something. I mean, you know, but it's like there is yeah, a little I, I bit of a danger. That, that's definitely yeah, but there's just a danger in that because then it's like you're just only if you only want to respond to things that you know. Well, now you've severely limited your perspective with the, as you know, as you know, as a digger for many years, the huge mountain of music that's out there, really good music yeah. that, you know, constantly gets ignored. You know, aside from maybe some record collectors paying thousands of dollars for it, but you know what I mean. Yeah. In general, it's. Uh, I just think there's so much music that's still just generally slept on because of that kind of concept that we still have oh, to operate in this medium. Yeah, of well, what I, people I, know. Well, a point I was going to make um, was like you know with, with you know you have all these radio stations now where like they've uh, consolidated, and you know the Clear Channel stations that they all have to work off a certain playlist, a very limited certain playlist, because there'll, there'll be times where let's say I listen to like a Clear Channel station, which you know, that plays like, you know, mainstream pop and within like an, you know, they, they, they'll play the same song every hour. It'll be like the same four to five songs get played every hour all day long. And because the stations have to work off a playlist and the playlist is dictated from the, from the corporate offices and the corporate offices, they've probably got some sort of relationship with like the, the record labels, which aren't even real labels because, you know, you can say you have 20 labels, but like, 15 of them all belong to one corporate entity. Right. So, so everything, you know, everything is getting kind of dictated from the top down, which, you know, even if you wanted to hear something really, really different, if you don't know to go to a record store and you don't know who to ask, you don't know where to find it, it's going to be tough to find it because you're going to listen to the, you know, I'm talking about as a kid, you're just going to know what you hear on the radio. And if you go on YouTube or anything, you're only going to look for what you hear on the radio. You're not going to know enough to say, oh, Latin funk or Afro-funk yeah. and yeah. do a search for Afro-funk on YouTube. Because all you know is like the latest Cardi B record. Right, right. And I think, you know, even there's there's different ways of even discovering music these days because, you know, I think that's kind of one of the beautiful things about digging for records is you actually don't really know what you're going to come across. Yeah. Where it's like... You know, even with me, you know, you can still go online in these different trees of different like links to find things and find things you didn't know about, et cetera. But I think with digging, that's what's kind of interesting about it. It's like 
you could flip through a record that you have no idea who the label is and the person. Maybe you got a portable record player with you or you can listen to them and you can discover things really completely by random, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, you know, and, and also I feel like that, you know, in terms of like nightlife and DJ culture, you know, I feel like, you know, we provide a valuable service in the sense of we can keep these kind of things alive and make sure people can hear them and know that there's an alternative out there besides just, you know, listening to what's on the radio and what you hear on TV. Well, that's even what uh, Sake One was saying, you know, in the, the last interview was talking about how, you know, DJ's job, it's not only in terms of entertainment, but to break records, you know, maybe you're in a position yeah. where you can lead people, you might have to hit them with some things to just make sure they're going to stay, but you can also lead them into maybe discovering some things that you really love that might be able to cross over to that audience, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Well, anyways, man. Yeah, we, I, um, no, sorry, I don't want to cut you off. Oh no, that's okay. I, I, I was just agreeing with you. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> that's something I always told too. Like you know, even the even the most even like the most commercial kind of gigs I get, I always try to you know play in something new, play in something different, play in something cool that can lead them somewhere else. Right, because there is a lot of stuff out there, people. <laughs> Yeah, but anyways, uh, we've been yakking for a while, so we might have hit our time limit here. But uh, it's really an absolute pleasure, Clifton, and I I hope to uh, see and spin with you soon, too. Always. Yeah, absolutely. And keep the faith, man. (laughs) I will. You take care, Jim. All right, man. Talk to you soon. Peace. (laughs) All right. Talk to you later. Oh, 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 oh,
Small Changes, Stark Reality on jasoncharles.net. jasoncharles.net. Deep talk, deep sounds. That was so deep.